0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Randy Trigger. I'm a member of the teaching team and a pastor elder here at Lakeside. and It's really good to be here with you. I've had the summer off, and it's, it's good to be back again. Um, welcome to those joining us on the live stream. I'm glad you're with us. Today, we're going to be spending most of our time in the book of uh, Joshua. It'll be verses, I'm sorry, chapters 3 and 4. So you can go there in advance if you'd like. Also, if you haven't already done so, as we're working our way through Joshua, it'd probably be a really good and helpful thing for you to just take some time and read through the book. There's a lot there, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. Today we're going to continue our series, Faith and Courage, Lessons from Joshua, with a message titled, Remember What God Has Done. Nate mentioned in the introduction to this series how all of these lessons are intertwined, how none of them just stand alone by themselves, but rather they, are, they support and build on each other. It's almost, you can't tell where one ends and the next one begins. And the lessons, well, they're not the final goal. We don't teach our children good table manners simply so that they can eat properly. No, it's to help them as they grow and mature and start interacting with other people. Perhaps they'll be at an important dinner one day for a for a big deal or a job opportunity, and we wouldn't want bad table manners to embarrass them. Take today's lesson uh, on telling the. St- I'm sorry. Take today's lessons on remember and telling the story. There's two parts to today's message. We talk remember, but there's also telling the story, and how they are intertwined even among themselves and how they're intertwined with the lessons that we've already done. Lessons on being humble and teachable, trusting, strong, and courageous. Remembering what God has done is critical for each of those lessons, and each of those lessons uh, helps us to remember and tell the story of what God has done. This is captured in our big idea for today. Remembering and telling the story of what God has done in the past Gives us courage and strength for the future. Remembering and telling the story, it's really critical for us. And it's critical for future generations. When I was in college, I took part in a, a study by someone in the psychology department. I earned a whole five bucks for a few hours of my time. I don't remember, it, it was on a study on how to remember things, and I don't remember what they all were. <laughs> uh, but. Um, I do remember a couple. One of them was I had to read a list five times and then sometime later they would ask me to tell them all the things on the list and I got some. Uh, I don't never followed up to find out what the results were but I do remember the one that worked the best for me. The list was read to me one item at a time and after each item I had to recite all the previous items and then add that one. And then later on when they asked me for that list I was able to get them all. There's actually a game called the memory train, which is very similar to this. So a person starts out by saying, I'm going on a trip, and in my suitcase, I'm taking a bear, right? And then the next person has to say the same phrase. They say the item, a bear, and they add something, an airplane, right? So it's, I'm going on a trip, and in my suitcase, I'm taking a bear and an airplane. Okay, the play continues with each person stating the, frame, the phrase, and then all the items previously mentioned in order, and then adding one more item. The game ends, or the person is, um, is eliminated when they make a mistake of any sort. And whoever is the person that can remember the list the longest wins. And you can see that it's an effective way to remember because it's both telling and remembering. It's both of those together. So, okay, these are nice ways to increase our memory. But what does this have to do with lessons from Joshua? Well, it's not just remembering to help my memory, but we'll see that today, the telling of the story is critical. In fact, it's a command that God has given to the Israelites. If I only tell to help myself, then I'm missing an imperative point of this story of Israel crossing the Jordan River. As I read these chapters, it became obvious to me how intertwined these two lessons today are, remembering and the telling of the story. It's it's really hard to even get them apart. I'll just give you a four instance before we get started. I'm going to jump to chapter 4, and we'll look at the end of 6 and verse 7. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. We'll cover the details of the stones a little later in the message. What I want us to see is that they acted as a memorial which was both to remind them of God's majesty and his uh, might and something that we could tell the story about that would teach our children and all future generations. Thus, it's a memorial forever. I, even though I can't show you the pile of stones here today, I'm still telling you their story. So please keep how these are intertwined as we make our way through a message which by, by necessity is more linear than I'd like. Let's start with the first three verses of chapter 3 now. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. God has led Israel to the brink of the Jordan River. We find out later in the chapters that the Jordan is at flood stage at this time. He has given orders to Joshua to not only just cross a flooded river, but then to conquer the enemies on the other side in the Promised Land. Joshua remembers, lead, Joshua remembers God leading Israel out of Egypt with many miracles. But it's doubtful that most of the, it's probable actually, that most of the um, Israelites at that time either were too young to remember, or perhaps they'd been born during those 40 years of wandering in the desert. So they wouldn't have any idea They had seen God's provision in the desert, but provision in the desert is completely different from crossing a flooded river and then conquering enemies on the other side. And I really doubt, as Nate mentioned in the first one, uh, with uh, Joshua taking on the Amalekites, that they were a well-trained fighting machine but they'd heard the miraculous stories that people had, even though they weren't there. They'd heard the stories of the escape from slavery through the Red Sea. They'd heard the stories of the 12 spies and how it was only Jacob and um, Caleb and Joshua who had, um, uh, had the faith and the courage to believe that God would lead them to victory. The other 10, well, they gave into their fear. And then they swayed the rest of the nation to follow them in that fear. And then they all suffered the consequences of doing so. There's many times in my life where I've followed uh, God and he's led me to a river. Like the Israelites with many enemies on the other side. Okay, maybe it's not that bad. But, you know, the feelings of doubt, um, feeling overwhelmed, not understanding, what is God doing here? Well, they're similar. One of those times came when I was in my mid-30s. I I felt God clearly telling me that it was time for me to leave my job at Simlink. But I loved that job. And I loved the fact that I worked with some really strong Christian men every single day. It was really helping me to grow. So I hesitated to follow God. And I started thinking about all that I would be losing and, and all the fears that were in front of me. And during that time, an old friend and an ex coworker worker uh, called me from another startup company, Altair Engineering. So they were hiring, and I went on a very simple interview. They pretty much already made the decision. And uh, they, they offered me the job, and I accepted and I gave my two-week notice, and I started preparing for my next leg like of my work journey. But I still had all those doubts and those fears rattling around, and they were pretty big. Well, then Simlink sent, uh, threw me a lifeline, right? They made a counteroffer, and they promised to fix a lot of the things that were bothersome to me. So I grabbed onto that lifeline, I gave in to my fears, I disobeyed God, and what a mistake that was. Within a short time, I found that nothing was actually changing at work. And now I had to deal with the fact that I had disobeyed God, and I couldn't figure out how could I disobey God when he clearly opened such a door for me. I mean, the job was mine before I even interviewed for it. So I (laughs) decided that I needed to find my own job since I could no longer go back to Elchira. I had rejected them. So I started a process from then in the spring all the way through a fruitless summer. And I, nothing. And yet, I found myself spending a lot of time in prayer, confessing my failure, and seeking God's guidance on what I could do next. And you know, as I prayed, my trust and confidence in God grew, and my fears, they shrank. I think Mike preached about that a couple weeks ago. I am not a grasshopper. (laughs) On Labor Day, I was up early in the morning. I clearly felt God telling me to call my friend at Altair again, which seems ludicrous. I'd already rejected them. But this time, I obeyed and called. Three weeks later, I started my June job at Altair. And two weeks after that, Altair implemented a hiring freeze I had gotten in just in time. You know, that was clear to me at that point that God's plan had included my working at Altair. And despite me, God had made it happen. This leads us to my first application question. What has been your flooded river which God has asked you to go through and you've hesitated or you've disobeyed? Perhaps you're there right now. If you are, can I I encourage you to be bold and courageous, to be brave and just trust God and take steps? Trust Him that He'll be there with you. And if it's in the past, Can I encourage you that just go talk to your father about it? Confess what you did wrong, your fears, your hesitations, whatever it was, and ask him to forgive you. I assure you that he will. And then seek guidance on what steps would God have you to take now. It may or may not be too late for you to, to go back, but it's never too late to obey and courageously walk with God as he leads you in another way. You know, God, he leads, and he never brings someone to faith and leads them there to figure it out on their own. He sends leaders to take care of his children. And these leaders at one time, well, they were new to the faith too. And they, were in, uh, and they required leadership. Moses, he was an exception. Moses was brought up in Pharaoh's palace. And... Uh, and he had, when he got old enough, he was. Um, he tried to lead Israel out in his own way, in his own strength, and he ended up fleeing into the desert, utterly defeated. It was from there that God called Moses. In his defeat and in his desert, he called him and he began training him up to be a godly leader. So let's look at verse 7 now of chapter 3. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So Joshua's been following Moses for 40 plus years, and he's been learning from him and he's been being mentored by him but there's a passing of the baton which which must take place. So God is telling Joshua that he's going to exalt him in the eyes of all Israel. But it isn't so that Joshua can get all puffed up and proud and lord it over the people. No, the purpose is to show them that just like Moses, God is with Joshua. He did this so the people would have confidence to follow Joshua as he led them across a swollen river and into an unknown land that they needed to conquer. God used miraculous wonders and shows a power which were far beyond human capabilities. I think God chose um, the crossing of the Jordan River at flood stage because it was similar to the Red Sea, and it would show Joshua in a similar light as Moses. At the time that they were doing this, the Bible consisted of the five books written by Moses, the very first five. We call it today the Pentateuch. The old. And uh, Joshua knew these books, and he spent a lot of time in them regularly. As Nate mentioned last week's message, he was a good leader because he meditated on the word of the Lord day and night. The promises to Joshua are the same as they are for our leaders today, and really for each of us in general. When we read and meditate on Scripture with our focus on God and following Him, then our way will be prosperous and successful. But it'll be God's definition of prosperous and successful. Not mine, not the world's. So here's another application. Who are the people I'm trusting to lead me? Okay, think outside church. Think of influencers. Influencers. Uh, Think of the people you follow on Twitter or Instagram. Think of the people that you listen to. Are they worthy of my trust? There are leaders who are trying to tell you that their way is the only way. It's the way to health, wealth, and prosperous living. Their way is the only right way, and you should only listen to them, and don't listen to other people because, well, you can't trust them, or they're evil, or they're only out for themselves. They make their way sound so good. Just follow these simple steps, and you too could be living the life that God intends for everyone. Heaven on earth. They found the path back to the Garden of Eden, a veritable fountain of youth. It sounds so good. It's almost too good. It is, in fact, a lie. How do I know this? Because I remember. I remember that Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I remember that the early church suffered great persecution and torment, and that there are Christians today in many nations that are also being persecuted. I remember that there are strong Christians in my life who have faced many troubles and are still facing those troubles. And I remember that God has been with me and he's been my peace as I've gone through my own troubles. These people are leading, but this isn't on a godly path. And I must reject them and find leaders that will help me to trust God through my troubles. So how can we tell when we found a leader that we can trust that they're going to lead us the way that we need to? Well, we take a look at the fruit of their lives. That's one way. Are they living lives that are consistent with scriptural teaching? And I certainly don't mean that they're following all the rules. No, I'm talking about following what Jesus taught, what we learned in the Sermon on the Mount, that their righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Look at Micah 6.8. This is just one example. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Is the leader you're following, are they just? Do they love kindness? In fact, they are kind. And are they walking humbly with their God? Are the things that they're teaching you consistent with what you read in scripture? And I'm not just talking about a few verses that can be taken out of context. Does it line up with your experiences and the experiences of other Christians that you know as you all walk with your God, with our God? So when we find a leader that we can trust and have confidence that they're following God, then we can follow them also knowing that they're following God who's leading them and he's the only one who knows the true path to heaven, God himself. Let's look at verses four and five of Joshua now. Yet there shall be a distance between you and the Ark of the Covenant, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. We have confidence because God is a holy God And he's so much greater and worthy of honor and glory and respect than any of us are here this morning. And that's the reason for those 2,000 cubits. It's about a half mile for us. That distance is to show us that God's position and his power. But it's also a, a promise of his that he's going to guide and protect and provide Joshua remembers God's commands to Moses and the nation of Israel when uh, Moses received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. God forbid the Israelites from coming anywhere near the mountain. In fact, anyone who put a foot on the mountain apart from Moses would surely die. God is perfect and just, and they aren't. And that's the reason that distance is there. It's to remind them of this very thing. Let's go look at verses 9 through 13 of chapter 3 now. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand up in one heap. That's an interesting picture. God knew that they didn't know the way and so they're instructed to follow the Ark of the Covenant. He knows the way, and he'll be a faithful guide to them. It wouldn't be the it would be the priests who are carrying the Ark that would have their faith tested the most. You see, they were instructed to carry the Ark to the river, and when the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, the water would stop flowing. The people could then follow. As, they followed, as the priests followed God, trusting that God would take care of everything. Sometimes our path leads us to a flooded river and other times to the valley of the shadow of death, as David clearly teaches us in Psalm 23. But David also says in the same Psalm 23 that he will fear no evil, for God is with him. It's the same here. Joshua isn't saying, follow me because you can trust me. The Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God among them. They had followed the Ark for 40 years through the desert. In essence, Joshua is assuring them if God can lead them into a flooded river safely, then they can trust him to give them victory over all the enemies in the promised land beyond. God was going before them. He was their true leader. He brought them to the edge of the swollen river with many enemies on the opposite side. Could they trust God when faced with these obstacles? Well, they needed to remember the stories that they'd been told as they traveled through the desert. Again, it's remembering. God was trustworthy and would go before them. One of the stories was about their flight from slavery in Egypt. The Israelites were confused when God led them out of Egypt into a veritable trap. They had the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them. Go back and read Exodus chapter 14. There's a lot of of questioning, wailing, and gnashing of teeth and fear. Why? Oh, why did we leave the good life of slavery in Egypt? Maybe it wasn't so bad after all. But God hadn't made a mistake. They were exactly where he had intended. His way is unknowable to us, but he had reasons which in hindsight make perfect sense. He instructed Moses to raise his staff and the Red Sea parted, and the nation of Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. Not muddy, dry ground. When the Egyptian army finally tried to follow them, God allowed the sea to return to normal, and they all drowned. He had rescued Israel and defeated their enemy in one fell swoop. And there's lots of other lessons here. One is that word of this miracle spread to all the nations in the area, and it created fear in them. Israel had a God who was not to be taken lightly. This time, it's not the Red Sea. They've got the Jordan River in front of them, and the enemies are not behind them, but they're in front of them. But they could be brave and courageous because they knew that God was bigger than any of their enemies, no matter where they were. Okay, so we've covered the lesson on remembering what God has done and said in the past. So now we're going to move on to the second part of this morning's message, his telling the story of it. So let's look at the first seven verses of chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan... The Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and commanded them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests' feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, So these stones shall be to the people of Israel, a memorial forever. These 12 men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, and these 12 stones are very important. I know this because as as I read chapters 3 and 4, they're mentioned multiple times. They keep coming up. In addition, God had the priests continue standing in the midst of the Jordan River long after the people had already crossed, And then he instructs those 12 men to go back into the river to the very place where the priests were holding the Ark of the Covenant and retrieve a stone from that place and bring it. Don't just jump past this as some odd thing that God is commanding them to do. He's creating a picture, a memorial, a remembrance for Israel. And by extension, you and I here a few thousand years later, God doesn't always give an explanation for his commands, but in this case, he does. And we can find it in the last five verses of chapter 4, beginning uh, at verse 20. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. And the reason, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. These stories would provoke a conversation. Tell me, what do you have this large pile of stones here? Seems rather odd to me. Well, let me tell you a story of my mighty God. This isn't really so odd to us, is it? We create photo collages that tell a story, or they prompt people to ask questions. Who is this person? How are they related? We erect headstones in, in uh, cemeteries so that we can remember uh, loved ones. There's memorials that are constructed along roadsides. They're there both to tell us the story of who had died there, but also they're there as a warning for the future. Several months ago, Steve used uh, some of the lyrics from the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. As part of that, our worship team sang the hymn, But they only sang the first and third stanzas, skipping the second one. If you notice this morning, they sang all of them. Here's the second one here. And as you read it, you can see that it's a beautiful part of the hymn. It tells the the story of the author's salvation and his washing in the precious blood of Jesus. But it starts with, here I raise my Ebenezer. I'm sure there's some people here this morning who have no idea what that means. Or perhaps you're wondering what Scrooge is doing in this hymn. (laughs) Sorry. Let me tell you a little story about the writer of this hymn. It's Robert Robinson. And Robert, he lived in the 1700s. He was brought up in a troubled home. When his father died, his impoverished mother sent him to London to learn to become a barber. But Robert, well, he fell in with a rather troubled crowd. And one night, he and his friends went to mock a preacher named George Whitefield as he preached a message. But when he heard George Whitefield preach of Christ, he was convicted of his sinfulness and his need for a savior. He turned his life over to him, and Robert felt that that one moment was one that needed to be remembered and told again and again. Okay, Randy, but what does that have to do with the Ebenezer? I'm getting there. Well, Ebenezer comes from the Hebrew, and it's it's like a compound word. And forgive my feeble attempt at Hebrew here, but it's Ebenezer, Ebenezer. It means stone of help. It's usually capitalized because it's referencing God as the stone of help. The word Ebenezer is not in this passage, but it is used in 1 Samuel, and the meaning is the same, the idea is the same. Remember I said not to overlook this part of the story of the crossing of the Jordan River and these 12 stones. The stones were from the very place where the presence of God was at. It was in the middle of their obstacle, and it was also the solution to it. Robert Robinson, these were to be a visual reminder that God was in the middle of their obstacle. And so he led them there to reveal to them that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Robert Robinson had fallen into a rather troubled life. And hearing the message of salvation became his Ebenezer. Jesus was his stone of help. And the reason that he felt this way because it was the time that God found him in the midst of his trouble, and God was also the solution to it. It was the beginning of his new life. Robert went on and became a preacher of the gospel in England. I mentioned new life. 2 Corinthians uh, 5.17 says this about that. There it for... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, before I came to Christ, I didn't see God working in my life. Therefore, I couldn't tell any stories of what he'd done or or how mighty he truly was. But as I grew, I'm sorry, ask anyone... This is true for everyone. You don't see what's happening until you see God working in them. And this is true for all of us. Ask anyone, and they'll tell you that nobody's perfect. Well, that's not quite true. God is perfect. Jesus, his son, is perfect. That's right. And our imperfections prevent us from having a relationship with a perfect God. This is symbolized by that half mile, those 2,000 cubits. There's a distance between us and God that we cannot get past. The Bible calls these imperfections sin. So another way to say that nobody's perfect is to say nobody's without sin. That wasn't always true. God created us in his image without sinfulness, without a sin nature. But Adam and Eve disobeyed God and brought sin and imperfection to all of creation. So every person is born with a sin nature. We can't stop ourselves from sinning. Don't believe me? Give it a try. You have to be perfect in every action, in every word, and you have to be perfect in every thought and motivation. Nobody can do that except Jesus. The sin separates us from God, but God wants to be close to us, and he wants to have a relationship with us. So there's only one way, and there was only one solution. The penalty for our sinfulness needed to be paid, and there was only one way for that sinfulness to be paid, and that was through a perfect sacrifice that needed to be made. So God the Father sent his one and only son, Jesus, who is perfect, to live here with you and me. And he lived a perfect life. He lived it perfectly in all of his actions, in all of his words, and in all of his thoughts and motivations. He then allowed himself to be crucified on the cross and die. That paid the debt for all of us. He then rose from the grave to show that his might and power is even stronger than that of death he paid the debt for everyone it was a free gift but a gift is only beneficial to you if you accept it it's right there before you but you need to ask the gift is eternal life with god through jesus christ his son can i encourage you this morning if you haven't done so Simply accept that free gift. Today could be your Ebenezer. Jesus could be your stone of help. Once you've accepted it, God washes you clean. You do indeed, as Second Corinthians said, become a new creation. And when you accept Jesus as your savior, he then sends the Holy Spirit to live within you. And the Holy Spirit helps you to grow and to mature, and he'll help you to see the things that God is doing in your life, the good times and the hard times. And you'll have stories to share and things to remember. You'll be able to see God working, and then you'll be able to share that, and he'll be in the midst of your trouble, and he'll be the solution to it. He'll be your strength and your provision. He'll be your protection. And he'll be your guide as you walk through those troubles. And what about all those things that you did in the past? All those bad things? Well, we're no longer condemned by them. The Bible assures us this many times. I'll give you just a couple. Psalm one hundred three twelve: As far as the east is from the west, So far does he remove our transgressions from us. In Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God somehow, in ways beyond our comprehension, uses those very failures for good to help accomplish his purposes. And, And they've been removed from us as far as east is from west. We no longer deal with those. God's taken care of it. Now that I've come to Christ, I can use those stories of my trials, my my strengths, my, my victories, the times that I've seen God working mightily in my life as both a reminder and a proclamation. I share stories with you when I give a message because I want you to see that it isn't me, but it's God who is my Ebenezer. Jesus is my stone of help. And now a final application question. If you've accepted that free gift, it's for you. How can I tell others about the free gift I've accepted? And don't limit your story to how you came to faith in Christ. Tell the stories of how he's been with you all the time, good and bad times. If you haven't accepted that gift, can I encourage you today to come and talk with me about it? I'd love to have a chat, as would any of the elders here, or anyone at at Lakeside, really, who knows Christ. We'd love to share. As we wrap up this morning, I'd like to remind you of these applications. What is or has been your flooded river which God has asked you to go through and you've hesitated or you've disobeyed. Please don't feel condemned. Remember Romans 8.28 says that God uses even our failures, but take time and talk to him about it and then be brave and courageous and walk courageously with God. Who are the people I'm trusting to lead me and are they truly worthy of my trust? There are a lot of voices in this world screaming loudly that they have the answer. It could be a politician, a self-help guru, a doctor, just about anyone. Remember that there's only one who knows the true answer, God. It's fine to listen to other people, but please reject anything which doesn't line up with God's truth as revealed in his word. How can I tell others about the free gift I've accepted? Pray and be open to the Holy Spirit's guidance as he leads you in this way. I'll leave you with our big idea for today. Remembering and telling the story of what God has done in the past gives us courage and strength for the future. Let's pray. Father God, we praise and thank you for the stories from the past that we hear now this morning. Lord, we ask that you help us to apply them in our lives, that we may have courage and strength to be brave and courageous and follow you. No matter what the river, no matter the desert, you're there with us. Father, I pray that you help those who are in the midst of trouble right now, that you'd be a very real presence for them, that they'd see you in the middle of the trouble and also recognize that you truly are the solution to it, that you'll give them your peace and your help father for those who have not accepted that gift i pray lord that you would be touching their heart lord drawing them to you and helping to understand how much you love them and how much you want to have that relationship with them we thank you jesus and we ask that you help us to be brave and to share the stories of jesus with those around us and to be open to the holy spirit's prompting when to share and how to share We thank you for this day. We thank you that, Jesus, you are our Ebenezer. You are our stone of help. We thank you again. We pray these things in your name, Jesus.